How many, uh, have you ever thought we, we discussed in our Sunday school, it was brought up a little bit from Job, the treasures of snow? Have you heard that phrase, the treasures of snow? Okay, let's say we get uh, four inches of snow Monday. How many snowflakes will fall on this church lot of about four acres? Do you know? How about on York and Hamilton County, do you know? Or Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, and all the way to the East Coast, the storm is supposed to go. How many snowflakes, you got any, any idea? Now, how many of these snowflakes will be exactly the same? How many? 20%? None. Yet they all have the same basic structure. Does that tell you something about God? Does me. We have an infinite God. We have a God that is incomprehensible. That is beyond our, our farthest imagination. And the only way we could know about him is if he tells us. Because we can't think him up. We can't imagine him. The world's tried. And they've come up with all kinds of weird ideas of who God is. You go to the Orient and you see these wonderful, uh, what do you call them, temples, they funny made, and then you go to the Middle East and it's different, yeah. And you go to Africa, the islands of the sea, jungles of Amazon, they have their own God. Come to America and we have our own God as well. And uh, we, as we sang the song, there's uh, the only way we have authority and the only way we know is from God's word. And so this morning, let's take a look at God's Word as it's found in Colossians chapter 2 and 19. Paul has been writing about the fact that false teachers are going to come in to the church. And there's going to be a lot of variance. A lot of times when I've been witnessing, people say to me, they, they want to get off the subject right away. So they say to me, okay, you believe in God. Why are there so many different churches? Very simple. Not all of them follow the word of God, verse by verse, line by line, precept by precept. And when you get off the line by line, precept by precept, and you don't really follow the word, the next thing you know, the church, the Christ, is downgraded. Christ is glorified the greatest when we really follow him and put our eyes on him as we just sang. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. It's true of a church, a local church. It needs to keep its eyes on Jesus. And the only way to do that is from his word. True in your life. Uh, I was prayed this morning that we would continue our Bible study or our Bible reading. Be however you do it. It's the only way you can keep track on your life and find strength to overcome your flesh. And if you don't, you downgrade Christ. Christ is degrading. So Paul says in this verse 19, he says, and not holding fast to the head from which the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. First of all, the first thing we notice here 
is that Christ alone is the head of the church. Not holding fast to Christ. It can get into tradition real quick. It can get into ritualism real quick. It the church can become a business rather than a family very quick. It doesn't take much. When we get our eyes off Jesus and we get our eyes off the word of God and we do things which are doing us. So the phrase not holding fast to the head is a present participle which means keep on holding. Keep on holding to the head. Rather than a continual devaluation of Christ as a head of the church, which we've seen in the last 2,000 years of church history. The church is splintered, splinted, and all kinds of things, and we have every kind of church under the sun going on at the present time. You want to go to a church that fits your needs? You can find one. But go to a church where the truth is really being preached and proclaimed and the people are living up to it and the leaders are following it, it's really rare. As one guy wrote, there's a famine in the land when he spoke of Bible teaching, true Bible teaching. And the one distinctive characteristic of these false teachers or false prophets or false churches is their total or partial denial of Christ's headship, of Christ's loyalty. They assume they have the authority rather than Christ. Look at Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. The verses 19 to 23 are all in one context. They're all in one context, but I want to draw out this one verse in Scripture as we go. And he gave him... Christ as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Why are you here? Why'd you come this morning? Because you came because you always come on Sunday? Or you came because you want to come more than Christmas and New Year's? Or Christmas and Easter, I should say. Why are you here? Is it here that you want to fellowship with the believers, be encouraged by them, and encourage one another, and also because you want to know God's word and be encouraged from the word of God? He's the head. Christ is the head. He deserves the worship. And he is the one whom God has placed as the head of the church. It's not the elders. It's not the deacons. It's not the pastor's staff. It is Christ who is the head of the church. Furthermore, we look at Colossians chapter 118, very context in which we are this morning in the previous chapter, where, G, where God pulses to us and reminds us, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Everything we do and everything we are, Christ is to be the head of it. And we ought to consult him in all that we do, in all of our lives as well. Furthermore, he says, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments. Christ nourishes the body. 
Turn with me to Ephesians 4, a sister epistle written about the same time as Colossians were. Both were in the Lycus Valley. They were sister churches. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Furthermore, not only is Christ the head of the church, but he nourishes it. And we read, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, he is the one upon whom we feed. All of us uh, uh, enjoy eating, I think. And all of us enjoy and get nourishment from what we eat. When we partake of the Word of God, he gives us nourishment. He gives us strength. He gives us every day to face whatever problem we're going to face. And as I read this morning in another devotional, it, uh, it reminded me of that verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. For there is no temptation to, among men that is different. And I'm not quoting it right, but let's go there. We can deviate from the Word of God. We're not under some denominational thing that we have to get through. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Quote it right. Where we read this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Nothing comes into your life that's different than happens to anybody else in the world. If you think, that you're the only one that has this problem, you got a problem of arrogance. You got a problem thinking you're the only one this ever happened to. Everything that happens to you has happened to every man and woman in the world at some time or other in their life. So don't be surprised when this happens, actually. And know this that God is faithful, He'll take you through it. Now, we're at the beginning of the year, and I have no idea what's going to happen this year. I have no idea what's all the little details that are going to come up into my life, or your life, or all of our lives, or our church. But I can tell you this, that it's not going to be unusual. And it's not going to be rare, and it's going to be common. And there's a way out of whatever trial it is that comes. So he is the nourishment of the body. He encourages us in this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, we read, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourish and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So you get a problem, you deal with it, if you're normal. Uh, if you got a pain you, you go do what you need to do to get rid of the pain and you do not you do not uh, no man he says ever hates his own flesh well we've seen people do that and take their own lives and that's abnormal that's not 
That's contrary to scripture, it's contrary to life at all. So even if you contemplate suicide, you need help and you need to get back into the word and you need to repent of your sin and get with it. God will take your life out when, you want, when he wants your life out and he'll take you at his time and it'll be exactly at his time, not before or later. So for a per person to get too depressed because they want to take their own life, that's a sin. That's a sin. God wants you to live. God brought you on this earth to serve him. Now I can understand if an unbeliever gets in that predicament because what hope do they have? But as long as you and I are alive, we're to serve the Lord with whatever strength we have and serve him fully and completely. Furthermore, Christ unites the body, take a look at this, by the joints and ligaments. Now, I'm not that coordinated and uh, the older I get, the less coordinated I become, it seems like. But what joins our hands together and our elbows and our shoulders and our knees and our feet, we, this all is joined together and we're one. And so the body is one. Christ unites the body. And we read here in John chapter 17, verse 11. We read this. I am no longer in the world, Jesus speaking to the Father, yet they themselves are in the world. That's us. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we, we are. Literally, in order that even as we be, in order they might be one, even as Christ, or even as we are one. How close are Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit? Is there any separation? No. Now a lot of people want to take that as an ecumenical movement, that we all ought to be one. But Jesus' prayer was answered and is answered. Go back to Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. He answers that prayer. He has answered that prayer. He says in this particular passage that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. What do you think that knit together is? We're one with each other as Believers, we don't always act like it, but we are one. Now I've told you before, you're closer to the believer than you are, are your own brothers and sisters who are not believers. We're closer than our own closest relatives. He says, you're knit together to all the wealth that comes from the fullness of the assurance resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is in Christ himself. Okay. When you put your faith in Christ Jesus, what happened? You became one with Christ. Is that true? You became one with him. You are already one in Christ. Now the true church needs to act like it. And how do we act like it? Well, we get instruction in all the epistles. One of the main ones is 
Love one another more than you love yourself, right? In honor, preferring one another. So when you get up in the morning, rather than saying, how can I enjoy my day today? You might want to say, how can I serve others today? How can I serve my wife? How can I serve my husband? How can I serve my neighbor? How can I show that I prefer them more than my own needs? How can I do that? You can do that in church. We used to have hymn books and somebody comes in, they don't have a hymn book, what would you do? You give them the page in the hymn book, you look it up. Right? You're, you practice what we would call courtesy. That's just practicing honoring one another and themselves. So when you come in church and you don't have children and you're not sick, you might just move into the center of the church and let somebody else sit so they don't have to climb over everybody to get there. That's just common courtesy. Or when you meet somebody in the hall, you just don't walk by them. You say hello or you nod or you shake their hand. If you know them well enough, you might want to hug them. Uh, I'm not of that breed, but you can do that. It's just common courtesy. Honoring one another more than yourself. Furthermore, it's Christ who causes the church to grow. We just read that. Growth which gr grows with a growth which is from God. Who causes the true church to grow? The great program of visitation? The great little gimmicks that you can offer out? And you can say one Sunday morning, we'll give you fish for all the people that come to get a fish. Next week, we'll give them a bowl. We can use gimmicks to get people to church. We can prod, push, and pull, and yell, and scream. But it's God who brings them to church. Take a look at Matthew 16, verse 18. How many church growth programs are there? I get telephone calls, hey, we got a new book on how to grow your church. And I say, my standard answer is, we already have one. It's the best one around. Oh, really? What's the name of it? And I say, the Holy Bible. And that ends the conversation. Well, we understand, we understand. But this is in addition. Whoa! In addition to God's word? Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus builds a church. And it's so strong that the hell, the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. Whenever the rapture of the church happens, I don't know when it'll happen this year, next year, 100 years from now, I have no idea. But I'm going to tell you this. There will be a believing, God-fearing church when that happens. No matter how strong, Satan will do whatever he can to destroy the church. And let me tell you something, he's destroyed a lot of them. But there are still Bible-teaching churches. Take a look at another verse, Acts 2, 
Verse 47. Acts 2, 47. I think most of you are here probably because of, of the Word of God. You come because of the Word of God. We read this, Acts 2, 47. Praising God and having favor with all people. This is the new church. Church has just started on the day of Pentecost. Having favor, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number that by day by day, those who were being saved. Who added to the church? Jesus Christ. He adds to the church. By the way, he subtracts from the church. Does both. It's his church, right? He's ahead of it. He'll make sure it's nourished. He'll make sure it's unified. And he'll make sure it grows. He's the head. Got to keep him there. Got to keep him there. Then Paul moves on and he says, we need to just remind ourselves about redemption in verses 20 to 23. So he gives us an explanation of redemption and he starts out positively. And he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, and he finishes it in the next verse. Why do you go back? Since, and that's a first class condition, which means, and you could translate it, since you have died with Christ, this is already an action that has taken place at your salvation. When you were born again, you died and were identified with Jesus Christ in his death. His death was in your place. His death was your death. And his resurrection is your resurrection to eternal life. You're one with him. Our, our present position before God is we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We're different people. We operate on a different principle. We don't operate as the world operates. We operate as God's children operate, as we're instructed in his word. At the moment we believe in Christ, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Take a look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. He's not talking here primarily about water baptism. He's talking about spiritual relationship to Christ, a position that we have. He says, what shall we say then? Paul has been talking about grace. When you got saved, you were saved by grace. Did you earn it? This means no countryside. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it because you deserved it. You didn't get it because you were some spiritual holy Joe or you were part of the gang. You didn't get it because of that. You got it because you placed your faith in Christ. You were chosen in Christ. And furthermore, you're one with him. So people say, and he is saying, grace will abound. You sin, grace really abounds. Not a one of us in this auditorium can say we're without sin. Not a one of us. I think I sinned last time, last Monday. No, I can't say that. 
I'm talking about my attitude. I'm talking about my practice and everything else. I'm a sinner saved by grace. The principle is the more I sin, the more he forgives. His grace is greater than my sin. And I didn't hear an amen on that, but it's greater than my sin. Now, so the question is raised by Paul. Shall we say then, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? No, absolutely not. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin shall live in it? And then he says in verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into the death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's an answer again to the oneness in John 17. It's not an ecumenical organizational unity. It's a oneness because we're one with Christ. And the Father and the Son live in us, the Spirit lives in us, and we are identified with Him. What a great thing. What a great thing. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, in our own context, uh, this passage, previous chapter, he already made that point. He says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of His glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the greatest riches you got since you were saved? Here's what he says in verse 27. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. Christ in you, in me. You know what that does? When I die, where am I going to go? Uh, have any of you been to Sunday school lately? Where am I going to go when I die if Christ is in me? Heaven. I don't have to go through any period of time to prove I'm worth going there. That's already been done. Jesus bought the way. He provided the way and he came into our lives and lives with us. And we're going to be with him forever. Can't even blow it. So the oneness with Christ means we have been separated from the elementary principles of the world. Now what are the elementary principles of the world? Now there's a lot of religions and they're all following the elementary principles of the world. And what are they? Working for your salvation. That's what they all have in common. Every religion in the world works for whatever they think is God and whatever they think the result will be. They work for it. Now, you know, we talked about the Jehovah Witnesses and I haven't had any come to our door since I've lived in Hampton. I guess we're off. They don't have any hope for us there. But why do you, I've heard people say, well, they're so active. We should be more active. Granted, they're active and we should be more active, but you know what? Why are they active? Why are they active? They're working for their salvation. They started out believing if you got saved, you'd be one of the 144,000 
Then they got over 144,000. Then they had to change it again and say it's the elite of the elite of the elite that become the 144,000. Sorry, only Jews will be 144,000. 12,000 from each tribe and they'll all be males. They're out of luck. The point is, the elementary principles is that you think if you go to church enough, you can be saved. If you read your Bible a year, daily, two times, you'll be even more saved. Or you believe that you have sinned and you got to do something to make it right rather than just going to Christ, confessing your sin, and if you have to make it right with somebody else, you're willing to make it right with somebody else. Confessing your sin. That's the elementary principles of the world. When you get your eyes off Christ, it becomes a work thing. It can become a work thing for salvation, and it can become a work thing for sanctification. If it snows 12 inches Monday, and you come over to scoop my driveway to gain favor with the Lord, don't come. Come. But don't come because you're gaining points. Got it? Got it? That's the elementary principles as well as the world. It's grained in the mind of lost humanity that they have to do something to please whatever they think God is. And our God says, it's all done. I provided all your salvation and I provided all your confession of sin and I'll give you everything freely, Romans 8. Wow. That's the grace of God. You don't work for that. You thankfully receive it and praise Jesus and His Father and live with the Holy Spirit knowing that. All right. It's grained in the world. And here's why it doesn't work. An old familiar verse used in evangelism, Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, all our good deeds, everything we consider good, are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind that take us away. Why are you doing what you do? Why are you coming to Awana? Why are you working in Awana? Why are you teaching Sunday school? Why are you here this morning? Because do you come because you have a gratitude that God has done everything for you and you just want to praise Him and thank you for it? Or you come because you think you get a certain amount of points, brownie points, before the Lord? Well, I've done that this morning. I've been to church this morning. Now bring on NFL. Or whatever you do. Bring it on. I did my duty. Or do you walk home and say, man, I was thankful to meet my fellow brothers and sisters. And I was encouraged by the Word of God. Or I was convicted by the Word of God. Or I was whatever the Word of God has for me. 
So I got to read it daily. It's a, you know, in Hebrews 4.12, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the mind. How many times have I read the word of God and I said, oh, brother, there I am. God, I confess my sin of pride, my sin of anxiousness, my sin of covetousness, my sin of greed, my sin of not putting you first and thinking only of myself. How many times you read the word of God and get struck by that? Of course, if you avoid it, you don't have to worry about it. You can rationalize it out. Romans 3, 10 and 12, very, another very good thing to remember about the world and remember about ourselves and about our, how our remnants of our old sin nature hang on and even though we're new creatures in Christ. Romans 3, 10 and 12 says, as it's written, there's none righteous, not even one. Did you hear that? Not a good person upon the earth, apart from those who have been regenerated and wear right, the righteousness of God. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's done you? does me. I think, well, there's a good person. But if he doesn't know Christ, he's lost. We talked about it uh, in our Sunday school that you can help a person. You can give them food. You can give them medicine. You can help them do what you're going to do. But if they die and they don't accept Christ, what happens? Yeah. They go to hell. And the greatest emphasis on our part ought to be what? Hey, do you know the Lord? Are you ready to go? If something should happen quickly. And it does occasionally. I've escaped death several times by inches. Person sitting right next to me died instantly. And it can happen very quick. And you don't plan for those things. It just happens. Look at uh, prior to our salvation, we were like children. Only we were slaves under the law. But when we trusted Christ, we became children of God. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 to 7. Paul says to the Galatians, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary things of the world. What was that? We thought we could work for our salvation. So we put bondage on ourselves. We've got to do this in order to be saved. I've got to do this in order to get eternal life. I've got to go here in order to get eternal life. I've got to eat this in order to have eternal life. So the religions of the world have put on bondage so that they would have an idea that they could be saved. They made their own law. The law, the Ten Commandments, were too strict, so we, we, we modify it to laws we can obey. But we're still under the law. 
the elementary things. And so, God sent forth his son. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. We just celebrated that a couple weeks ago. So that he might redeem those, buy out those who are under the law in slavery. How do you get out of slavery? I know slavery is a big issue right now, except that it happened in our country. But we know enough about slavery to say this. How do you get out of slavery if you're a slave? Can you work your way out of it? No. Someone has to buy you out. Someone who is rich can come and say, you know, Joe, I want you out of here. I, I want you to enjoy freedom. I'm going to buy your freedom. I'm going to redeem you from slavery and make you free. And that's what the Colossians were missing. Being free. Let's go ahead and take a look at that. Take a look at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Now, I, I, I won't be reading all of that. But here's, what he, here's the gist of the passage. Look at verse 2. For the married woman is bound in the law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. Verse 6. We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we can serve in newness of spirit and not in childness, or excuse me, in oldness of the letter. What does that mean? If you're married, you are bound to your wife or your husband how long? Not forever. What ends your marriage? Death. It's over. Marriage is down here only. And I know we have people that are, are can't wait till they get out of it. And some people are, don't want to leave it. But the truth is, and at least in the ceremonies I had participated in, un, we are to promise to each other until what? Death do us part. You're no longer. Bound. Paul uses the illustration in the Christian life. That illustration. Remember in Romans 6 what he said? You died to Christ. You died with Christ. You're buried with Christ. And you rose again. So when you accepted Jesus Christ and put your faith and trust in him, having repented of your sin, what? You died to the world. You're no longer bound to it. You're free. You're free. And there's a certain freedom that comes. Sorrow, true, and lots of other things, but there is freedom. Now, therefore, Paul says, why would you desire to go back into the religious slavery? So Paul asks a question in this sense. Why, if you're living in the world, do you want to submit yourself to the degrees such as? Why do you want to go back? Why are you letting somebody put this back on you? You don't have to. 
And he gives us an example in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All religions have their do not, do not, do not, do this, do this. You and I, as believers, are serving in newness of spirit. I've told you a story. I was on a ski lift years ago, and the guy said, uh, what do you do? We were got stuck on a ski lift halfway up the mountain. And he says, well, what do you do? And I said, if I tell you, you'll not speak to me again. It's that bad. Yeah, it's that bad. So I said, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a surgeon from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Now, what do you do? I said, I can't tell you, you'll stop talking to me. So finally I said, I'm a pastor of a church. And his answer was, why would you do that? Perfectly useless position from his point of view. And it is to many, it is to many. I'm not serving this because I feel compulsion to do it. I didn't go into the ministry because I felt this is something I got to do. I've looked at the ministry as a calling and I've looked at the ministry as something I want to do. It's my desire to do this. And I want to represent God. Now you're not all in the ministry, but you are in the ministry. I happen to be full-time vocation in it, but you are all part of the ministry. And you're free to serve God. And you ought to serve God because you love Him, not because you have a list of do's and don'ts. But because you love Him. And you want people to love Him. And you want to love people. These regulations originated in the world of lost sinners and represent the efforts to gain acceptance by whatever they deem as God. The true God of the Bible is holy in the purest sense. And no work of a sinner can please him. The perfect Son of Man pleased the holy God's wrath towards sin and sinners by bearing their sin, their punishment, and their judgment in the sinner's place. He did it all. I don't have to, I will not experience one second of hell because of what Jesus did. It is, that's great. And I'm not going to be sanctified because I follow a certain diet, because do I go a certain time, because I go 100% every time the church's services are open. I'm not going to go to hell because I missed all that. I go because I serve in the newness of the Spirit. The impetus of the Holy Spirit is that you will be with believers. Not because you have to be. If you have to be and you live under that kind of thing, well, i got to be at church this Sunday, this a Sunday, and they're going to expect me there. That's a wrong motivation. You're putting a rule on yourself you don't really need. You go because you want to. Not because you have to. 
Well, I got to read the Bible this year. Everybody's reading the Bible at Countryside Bible Church. If I don't read the Bible, and I got to do it in the morning, I got to do the one-year Bible. No, that, I do that because I want to, but you can do it the way you want to. You're free. You're free. You can try to appear God. You can be, there are, just understand this, there are no holy men like the Orient holy man who walks around with his pious, self-righteous attitude described by the Pharisees. Okay, take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. He says, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. Those are all made up of the world. Now look at this verse, these verses. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, they're not teaching doctrine of demons. They're falling prey to the world's way of doing things which the spirit of the Satan can use to deviate you from the truth. Doctrines of demons, teachings of demons. You know what that is? The elementary principles of life. The teachings of demon is that you can work for your salvation. And you can work for your sanctification, for your spiritual growth. Well, how does it express itself? By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, that's with a branding iron. How strong is that? It's like somebody took a branding iron, branded your brain, and branded it so that you can't listen to anything else. Ever try to deal with a self-righteous person? Man, he's locked in, and you cannot make sense with that guy. Here's another way it expresses itself. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining, abstaining from foods which God has created to be carefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Why does diet get into this? Why does food get into all this legalism? It does. You can eat lettuce leaves and birdseed. And you'll be spiritual. No. You can absolutely eat shrimp. Want to. Catfish, liver, onions. Whatever you want to eat, eat. You don't need a guilt complex. Doesn't mean everything is good for you. But the point is, God has said everything I've made is good. And you thank God for it when you pray. That's why you pray before a meal. You say, Lord, I dedicate this food to you for my body. I mean, we pray that so common we don't even think about it. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let these gifts to us be blessed again. At least that's the way I learned it. I know another one, too. God is great and God is good. We thank you for this food. By his end, we'll all be fed. You know what? We used to say that in grade school. Before we ate, that's how far we've come in the last 60 years, 70 years. 
Can't even do that anymore in a public situation. And he said, now look what he says about this. He says, God, those who forbid marriage and advocate standing from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in those who believe and know the truth. You know what? You can get married and enjoy it. Enjoy your marriage. God created it for you to enjoy your marriage, to have companionship, to enjoy one another physically. That's what God created it for. Enjoy your time. Oh. God created the food too. Verse 4, for everything God created for God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it's sanctified, set apart by means of the word of God and prayer. A lot of marital problems because somebody gets the idea that it's not spiritual physically. It is. It is. God intended for us to enjoy marriage, to enjoy food, to enjoy life. Doesn't mean we go out and sin. Probably the most common sins that are committed in the church, a lot of them are committed right in the foyer. Some some talking about other people, right? Gossip. Man, do we love to gossip. And we think it's respectable, especially if we add, this is a prayer request. Be careful. That old sin nature is right there, ready to grab it. Check your motives. Check your motives. We're all here who are believers in Christ or one in Christ. Let's enjoy one another. And let's put each other better in himself. And I'll tell you what. If you really want a grateful and a good and happy life, hold fast to Christ and his word. Let us stand for prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning and we have a lot of things to deal with in our own life. And we don't need to be judging anybody else because we're going to be judged by you. And uh, so we have enough in our own lives, more than we can say grace over for the most part. So help us, Father, not to be legalists and judge one another by what they do, but keep, uh, keep encouraging one another to put Christ first in all. May he be glorified in our lives. And may he not be relegated to second and third place. For we cannot have two masters as you personally have said. For we will either hate one or love the other. And unfortunately, it's always Christ who gets the short end when we put others first. He's put last. Help that not to happen. May every believer here search our own hearts and make sure he is the head of our life in everything we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.